everyone. The scripture reading today is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5 and 9 to 11 on page 586. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the word of the Lord, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Good morning, everyone. My name's Greg, for those of you uh, who don't know me. Thank you for coming today. Um, I feel like I, I should just get, go back down in my seat and let you tell your story again, but um, I, I spent some time on it, so I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> just kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding about that spending time on it. But anyway. uh, one other thing that I've actually been meaning to point out for the last couple weeks is, I don't know if you remember, we asked for toilet paper rolls. Do you remember ask, asking for toilet paper rolls? Nobody's asked me what happened with those toilet paper rolls. I want to point out that this wreath up here, Clem made this out of toilet paper rolls. So I encourage you to come up and check it out because it's actually quite gorgeous. Um, just anyway, just that idea of, we, of the way that we can and also the way that God takes things that we might even think of as garbage um, and makes them beautiful. Um, make something new um, out of the old. And uh, anyway, just encourage you to check that out. My dad grew up in a part of Ontario called Muskoka Lakes. You could say he grew up in the small town of Bent River, but to say town would be an exaggeration. In fact, the dirt road he grew up on didn't even have a name. It was simply called SS Number 7 Watt, which was actually just the identifying number for the one-room schoolhouse that he went to. They didn't name the road, they just had a, a government identifying number, and they just called that their street. I remember fondly the times, though, that as a kid, we would drive up to, to Bent River to visit my grandparents. Not only, of course, the time I spent with my grandparents, but even just the drive up itself. I don't know if you've ever been to the part of Ontario uh, called Muskoka Lakes, you might be familiar with images like this one. 
Two-lane highways and roads that weave around lakes and rivers, twisting and turning between these large, beautiful rock formations that face the side of the road. It's always gorgeous, even, well, perhaps even especially in winter, when the giant icicles would form on these rock faces pouring down. I think we've got a picture of ice ones, too. As a kid, I thought these rock faces were just a natural part of the beauty of Muskoka. But then I found out that they didn't actually pave roads where the rocks had separated. They separated the rocks <laughs> so that they could pave the roads. These rock faces were created by drilling deep holes and then blowing it up from the inside. The terrain was naturally too hilly and dense to easily transport people and supplies by land. So once the technology was available, the terrain was just laid to waste so that roads could go through. The hills and giant rocks were split apart, were brought low. The rough ground was made level. Rugged places were made to a flat plain to make a highway through the wilderness. And if that sounds somewhat familiar, that's because it is what Karen just read for us. This is the image that we get in Isaiah, in Isaiah 40. Every valley raised up, every mountain and hill made low, rough ground made level, rugged places made a flat plain to make a highway through the wilderness. Uh, let's pray as we uh, look at this. God, you are the great revealer. Revealer. Um, and I would ask, as we look at your promises in Isaiah, may you open our eyes and our ears to your message of hope and of your presence. Amen. As we consider Isaiah's words, uh, this is something I've said before, but I think it's worth uh, repeating. Like the other prophets in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah is not actually in the business of predicting the future. But that's not what Old Testament biblical prophets aren't in the business of predicting the future. Contrary to popular belief, a prophet isn't someone who predicts the future so much as someone who speaks on God's behalf. Someone that God uses to tell God's people what they need to hear at that time. So when we read the prophets and we're just trying to find predictions, we actually miss the main point of what the prophets are saying, what they are about and what they are saying is more like crisis management. All of the prophets ministered in intense times of crisis. Everything they were saying was to help God's people in the midst of crisis, whether it was telling them why they were in the crisis, telling them what they should do about the crisis, or offering hope for how God was going to bring them through and out of the crisis. Now, this being said, while the words they're saying has important significance to the specific people to whom the prophet is speaking in that specific time period, we also know that God does use the words of the prophets to speak into different times in the future. I think everyone who reads Isaiah thinks it's about their own context. It was true, of course, for the first hearers, because that was Isaiah's point. But then it was also true for many of the first century Jews, it was true for the early church, as we know, as it's in, it's, Isaiah is often quoted, whereas the writers would look back and go, hey, we can see Jesus in here. 
right? They're looking back and going, hey, this is true today. Jesus, we see Jesus and is here. Even though Isaiah's intent wasn't Jesus, we can look back and say, oh man, that, that sounds like exactly who God is. Surprise, that's who God revealed himself to be in Jesus. Still today, we find Isaiah's words sound like they could have been written for our context. And I think this is the beauty of Scripture and that God's desire is for it to always speak into whatever context it's read. The section of Isaiah uh, that we find ourselves in today, just to give you a, a broad picture of how this fits in, Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 is most likely written somewhere in the mid-6th century B.C. Now, some traditions will say that the entirety of Isaiah, all 66 books, were written in the 8th century, so two, uh, two centuries earlier, by Isaiah ben Amoz. And they'll say that it was written in the 8th century, and the way that it speaks directly to the 6th century is actually because Isaiah was predicting the future, right? Now, of course, God can do that, and God does do that at time, um, but anyway... Whichever of these you believe, whether Isaiah 40 and 45 was written in the 6th century or 8th century, whichever you believe, the point is the same. Isaiah 40 is speaking to Jews who were taken captive by the Babylonians. They were dragged away from their country to live as exiles in Babylon. For those of you who are here last week, Sam spoke another prophet named Ezekiel. And just so you can get the picture, Ezekiel was also writing from Babylon, He was writing from the same exile, except Ezekiel was writing earlier, about a few decades earlier than Isaiah. So Isaiah comes after, uh, Isaiah 40 comes after Ezekiel, if that makes sense. Both Ezekiel and Isaiah speak of God, Yahweh. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in English Bibles in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord, all capital letters... The Hebrew word is Yahweh. It's a name for God. When you say, see Lord, small, capital L and small O-R-D, that is just the word for Lord. <laughs> That's why sometimes in the Old Testament you'll see Lord, Lord. Or in this case, they changed one word Lord into sovereign so that we weren't confused. But it's actually a Yahweh Lord. But anyway, all that to say, Yahweh was going to come to Babylon. This is what Ezekiel and Isaiah both say. As Sam said last week, Ezekiel is speaking about about Yahweh coming through this temple imagery. The house of God coming to their place of exile in order to be a sanctuary, a holy place, a safe place for them outside of their home city of Jerusalem and here in Babylon. But Isaiah, unlike Ezekiel, Isaiah uses, instead of temple imagery, his imagery is one of a highway. And this is a message, his message of comfort. Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 to 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A message of comfort. Comfort is a major theme in Isaiah 40 to 55. Speak tenderly. These are words which mean, the word tenderly actually means heart. Speak heart to them. The heart was the locus of thoughts, emotions, will, the deep guts of who we are. 
Speak the deep guts. Speak to the deep guts of who they are. Take comfort. Hear this message of compassion in the very depth of who you are for this hardship you have endured because of your sin has been more than paid for. If God's people had been taken captive because of their sin, now their sin has been paid for, and so the time has come for God to bring them comfort, compassion, peace, and freedom from their oppressors. Yahweh is going to bring them home to Jerusalem, so take heart, be comforted. However, the message of comfort is even greater than simply being freed from exile and going home, if you can even imagine that there's something greater. You might not think that is possible, but here in Isaiah 40, the message of comfort is not as much about the Jews returning to their homeland. It is is that God, Yahweh himself, is coming. And yes, Yahweh himself will take you back, in their case, through highways, in your case, on boat. But God is going to bring you back. But first, God is actually coming to you. Isaiah 40, 9 and 10. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. Who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it out, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. This is a message Isaiah gives again, almost word for word in chapter 62, verse 11. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Here is your God, Yahweh, the Savior, the Rescuer is coming. He's coming to be in your midst, in the midst of exile, the arrival of the divine king to rescue and care for his people. Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord, oh, sorry, after, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When God comes to you in your exile, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. God's majesty, strength, compassion, and salvation will be made known to you in the very midst of your oppression and your displacement. And this is the message of comfort that Isaiah brings. And as we know, God was true to fulfill that promise to the Jews in exile, as we know, the Jews were given compassion and were able to come home and rebuild their city. But what's interesting and quite hard to fathom is the way that Yahweh redeems God's people from exile in Babylon. As Sam told us last week, Ezekiel has a good shepherd. Well, so does Isaiah. But in Isaiah, God says through, through Isaiah that Cyrus, the king of Persian, is the shepherd through whom the Jews will be able to go home. So it's a surprise. Cyrus is the king of Persia. So the, the, Israel, the Jews are in captivity in Babylon, and this bigger kingdom, Persia, who are also not Jewish, their king is going to be their shepherd, is what Isaiah is saying. In four, Isaiah 45 
Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. The word here for anointed is Mashiach. And if Mashiach sounds familiar, it's how we pronounce it in English, Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christ. So here in Isaiah, the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king is Cyrus. The king of Persia who would actually come and conquer Babylonians with violence is actually God's Messiah, Isaiah says. Or not God's Messiah. Nobody saves God. The Jews' anointed king that is going to come and save them. The king of Persia who would conquer the Babylonians and eventually show mercy to the Jews and allow them to return to their homeland. This idea that the Mashiach would be a king who wasn't Jewish or in the genealogy of David would have been considered absolutely scandalous to the original hearers. But then again, God has never seemed to be one who's too concerned with what we humans think is socially or culturally acceptable. God definitely isn't going to be constrained by our notions of what scandalous is and what is not. In fact, to understand this, we need to look no further than the idea that God, the fullness of who God is, would be born as a vulnerable baby. The New Testament tells us that we see God in God's fullness in Jesus. For Jesus to be called God also was a great scandal. For Jesus to be called the Mashiach, the Christ, the anointing king, but yet have no military victories, no human army. For the Christ to not destroy their oppressors, but to actually be destroyed by their oppressors. In this way, Cyrus actually is what, more like what the Mashiach, the Jews were looking for, was going to be. Military might, violence, kick out the oppressors. Jesus might not look like what they were expecting, but Jesus, as we know, was the true Mashiach, the fullness of what God was actually looking forward to and promising. In Isaiah, the mode of the Jews being rescued, the mode of their salvation was Cyrus, an even bigger violent king to be their rescuing king. But Isaiah's words, as we know, has foreshadowed a work of God that God would do centuries later that's even bigger than this, bigger than an army swooping in from the east, bigger than a totalitarian ruler growing a heart for God's people to let them return to their homeland. The big, boundary-changing, earth-shattering thing would be a defenseless baby. A rescuing king who would allow himself to be conquered by his oppressors in order to break the chains of oppression. The one who sustains the entire universe being sustained by the nourishment of his mother's breast. This is the big thing. That God did. God did an astounding new thing in Isaiah's time, bringing the presence of God to the nations, of a non-Jewish king becoming the savior of the Jews. But like we often see in the scripture, when God does something that parallels something he's already done, oftentimes this new work of God exceeds the old one. This new work of God in the coming of Jesus far exceeds the great acts of Exodus 
The coming of Jesus far exceeds salvation from exile. The glory of the Lord has been revealed, as Isaiah says. Here is your God. Wrapped in swaddling cloth is lying in a manger. See, your Savior has come. This is your rescuing king. The scandal is that the might of this rescuing king was humility. The power of this rescuing king was compassion. Comfort. Comfort my people, your Savior has come. And here in the middle of this, Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. It's funny, in English, you know, the, um, where you put a comma makes a big difference. This, you, sometimes this had been translated, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, comma or colon, prepare you the way, right? But it's actually more likely a lot of English translations are more, it's a voice of one calling, colon, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare. So it's not a person in the wilderness that's, call, that's supposed to call. It's a person who's calling, saying, go in the wilderness to prepare. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain, hill laid low. Rough ground shall be become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all of the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a picture of a messenger going ahead of a king to prepare the way. Whenever a king travels, messengers go ahead to make sure sure that everything is set for them to come. I mean, we see this today whenever there's a summit of world leaders. Millions, sometimes billions of dollars are spent to prepare the hosting city, right? Everything from security to actually sometimes changing roadways, fixing up the outside of buildings so that uh, all of these world leaders would just see the best parts of the city that we want them to see. I've always pictured this passage as paving a road in the middle of a flat, barren desert, something like this. But Isaiah, this is a blasting away of granite in Muskoka to make a highway. This isn't simply booking hotel rooms and restaurant seatings. This is a complete transformation of the landscape to make a pathway for the rescuing king to come. The wilderness is filled with hills and valleys, a challenging landscape to travel through with places that enemies can ambush you. This is no way for a king to travel. And so Isaiah speaks about making this highway in the wilderness for Yahweh to come to Babylon to redeem God's people. We see the same passage quoted in the New Testament, but this time is speaking about Jesus' cousin. Uh, we, uh, in our tradition, we call him John the Baptist. The Eastern Church calls him John the Forerunner, which is probably a better actual exam- uh, description of John's call. He did baptize people. His role was to be the forerunner to Jesus. John was called to prepare a way for Jesus, the anointing king. And how does he prepare a way for Jesus? How does John make straight paths, fill in valleys, and make mountains low? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, we see that John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, some of us 
we, we, oh, I was taught repentance is just kind of the same as confession, right? When you repent, it's confessing. You're, just, you're saying you're sorry. Whoops, I did this thing. I'm really sorry about it. But confession and repentance aren't the same thing. Confession, you can say, oh, I'm really sorry about it, and then you can just keep doing the same thing, right? Oh, I'm really sorry that I, uh, you know, I didn't help give money to the Spring Garden Church to meet that budget, and then just walking away and not, not doing anything about it, you know? It's saying, oh, I really wish that I had done something to help that person that I passed on the street, and then passing another person and not doing anything. That's confession without repentance, <laughs> Repentance is actually turning. The word means to turn. It means to change direction. John is preaching that people need to turn away from one thing into another, to change direction. And he gives us specific examples of what it would look like if God's people were to repent. To the person who has two shirts, he says they should share with a person who has no shirts. To the person with food, he says you should share food with the person who has none. To the tax collector, he tells them not to collect more money from people than they are required to do. To soldiers, he says don't extort money from people. Don't make false accusations. Be content with your pay. This is what repentance looks like. How are we to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus? How are we to prepare a way for the rescuing king as we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Well, it might look like turning away from selfishly hoarding food and wealth while others grow hungry and poor. These are the examples that John the the Baptist, the forerunner, uses. Change directions from making undue profits at the expense of others. Preach good news of a God who comes as a baby rather than propagating the idea that God is going to kill your enemies. Preach the good news of a God who comes in a baby as a, a poor, average person without wealth, without anything, into a small, humble beginning instead of worshiping a God of consumerism and comfort. Perhaps another way of asking the question is, is what rubble is cluttering the way for the king to come to you, to come into your life, to those you love, to those who toil and labor beside you? And I know for me, one thing that clutters the way for Jesus to come in my life is busyness. My life is busy. It's hard to find time to make room for Jesus to come. Oftentimes, my life doesn't leave enough space for God, and I'm a pastor. (laughs) I don't think our call to prepare a way for God, though, to prepare a way for God with us to come, is actually simply metaphorical or spiritual clearing of the road, the types of things that I've been talking about. Jesus taught us whatever we did for the least, for the prisoner, the poor, the hungry, the naked, He didn't say it, but I think this is wrapped in the scripture for the displaced, the refugee, people who have to flee their countries for their lives. Whatever we do for them, we do for Jesus, Jesus says. I think when we prepare a way for those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, those who are displaced, we do the same for Jesus. I think of this amazing story that uh, Vincent, Jane, and David shared with us today. The dangers they had to endure 
to find refuge in another country. The thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people who died doing the same trip that they did. The very practical compassion they received from people to help them make a home here in Canada. The picture I showed earlier of the mountainous terrain in the wilderness, the desert wilderness, that's actually a picture of part of the journey that many had to travel through during the Syrian refugee crisis. This is actually one of the pathways they had to travel through in order to make it to safety. Although this is only like, what, maybe a kilometer of the, of the route that they had to take. Vietnam, Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Myanmar, Iran. The list of refugee crises and displacements of people is unending, and it even seems to be growing the number of people who die while trying to flee for safety is astounding. I believe that making a highway for the displaced, making safe passage for refugees and the dispersed persons to safely to safety and to flourishing is making a way for Jesus. It is creating a highway. Imagine if highways for refugees were clear. Imagine if the boats were safe. And they didn't need to worry about being captured, shot, imprisoned, or drowned. This would be making a highway in the wilderness. Do you know about 34% of refugees in Canada are living in poverty? We're a welcoming country. But we're failing 70% of the time. No, yeah, we're failing 70% of the time. Because we welcome people here, and then if they can't pull up their bootstraps and make it, they end in poverty. Which is why we are trying as a people to help a family to not arrive alone, but to help support them so that they can thrive and have flourishing. This is what people did for you. And they've built a beautiful life here in Canada because some believers in Jesus decided to make a highway for them to find safety and, and flourishing here in Canada. Imagine if the mountains and valleys of our systems for refugee claimants was straight. Imagine if the accessibility of jobs and foods and homes. Imagine if all persons with disabilities, whether physical, mental, or otherwise, had access to the supports that they need, access to the dignity that they deserve. I could go on and on, but I think you get my point. What does the fruit of repentance look like in your life? What does it look like in our lives? What does it look like in our church? How can we make a way for Jesus, the rescuing king, who can be found amidst the exiled, the displaced, and the marginalized? Our rescuing king, God with us, does not come with the pomp and the fanfare that the world expects. Instead, the Messiah comes as a baby, took on flesh of our vulnerability, innocence, and humanity. Did I say humanity? I meant humility. I would encourage us this Christmas, as we celebrate this coming of this baby, this hope of all of the years... <laughs> that are met in this one moment of the birth of Christ. 
May we see the glory of the Lord in this manger. May we know the comfort and the tender compassion of a God who is with us in our displacement and our exile. And may we respond to this great gift with lives that bear the fruit of repentance, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord into our world. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our rescuing king. You are the one who comes into our world to break down divisions, to break down hatred, to break down violence. You came into the world so that people would so that the world could become unified, could become one people, that boundaries could be broken down. And yet here we are 2,000 later, Lord, and sometimes it feels like our world has not moved forward, but moved backwards in some ways. But yet we know, Jesus, that as the light, you are the sun that has begun to dawn even though there are still great shadows in those first mornings of the sunrise, that you continue to rise, Lord, and that we can stand in your light and that you dispel the shadows and the darkness. It is our desire, Lord, to walk with you. It is our desire to make a way for you in our lives and in our church. So God, give us the humility to turn from what isn't you and to turn towards you, Jesus, our rescuing King. Amen.